I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Martha Shabis joins me now. She's just published a new novel, My Face in the Light. In the book, our main character, Justine, has just passed her 30th birthday, and she's uneasy about her life, her marriage to Elias, and her career as an actress. I've only read a part of the book, so I'll get Martha to tell us as much as she'd like about what happens in the story. It's rather engaging. Justine also has a scar on her face from a childhood accident that uh, shapes how she sees herself as much as how others see her. Martha Shabas is a writer and critic. Her first novel, Various Positions, was uh, shortlisted for the Evergreen Fiction Prize and named a Book of the Year by the Globe and Mail, Quill and Choir, and now Magazine. She was the Globe and Mail's dance critic from uh, 2015 to 2020, where she also wrote about theatre and books. Her writing has appeared in various publications, including The Walrus, Hazlitt, and The New Quarterly, her Twitter handle is at Martha Shabus. My Face in the Light is published by Knopf. We taped this interview 10 days ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Martha Shabus. Ms. Shabus, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Pretty good yourself. I'm very well, thanks. Um, I, I was just telling you, just before we started, how much I'm enjoying the book. Um, when we meet our central character, Justine, um, I, I can't remember exactly when it was in, in the book that I realized that I didn't like her. Now, it's, it's a terrible thing to say because we, we, we don't have to, to enjoy reading about people that we don't like. You know what I mean? Um, does that make sense? Yes, <laughs> we, we yeah, don't, absolutely. We yeah. don't have to enjoy people, you know, to, to read about them or to be engrossed by them as we are in, in your book, My Face and the Light. Um, when we first meet her, though, in, in, as we start the book, where is she in her life? How old is she? So, yeah, the book opens with Justine on the brink of her 30th birthday mm. and at a point in her life where she feels a ton of ambivalence about really everything, really most, most aspects of her life. She has been married for almost a decade. She got married somewhat young mm-hmm. uh, to a social justice lawyer, um, but she's feeling quite, I don't know, um, unsatisfied or unsettled in that marriage and, and not really able to make sense of why. She has a quite a successful career as an actor in the theater, mm-hmm. but she doesn't feel genuine in her work. She's someone who feels like she came she came by acting very naturally. She has a sort of natural talent as a mimic, but she doesn't feel like there's much profundity or sincerity in what she does. So she's not terribly satisfied with that. Um, and then at the center of the novel is her very fraught relationship with her mother, mm. Rachel who is a somewhat famous Canadian painter and from whom uh, Justine is estranged. She's been, um, when the novel opens, I think they haven't spoken for two years. Um, so yeah, Justine, Justine feels overwhelmed by the sort of layering of, of a lack of authenticity in her life and is sort of reaching a, a boiling point when, when the novel opens. Mm. I have to say I'm so curious as to why uh, you didn't like Justine. <laughs> um. Well, I'll get into that in just a sec, because I, I feel sure. like if I tell you now, I'm going to give something away to, to people <laughs> listening to us. But the, the thing that, that struck me early on as I was reading about her is, is that um, even when she's describing meeting Elias or she's talking about aspects of her past, she seems very lonely, mm-hmm. um, almost like isolated. Even even the incident where she, she um, um, uh, from her childhood, that's quite formative in her childhood, um, her mother was away for that, and she was with another family. Um, she seems very isolated and cut off from people, even when she's around people. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't think it's given too much away to say that Justine has a large scar across mm. her forehead. Right. Um, and that was caused from this sort of um, event in her childhood where her mother, as a painter, was off in Europe. She was about nine years old, and she walked into a wall of glass that scarred her. Um, and that the scar comes to symbolize lots in her life. But yes, there's a huge uh, degree of loneliness um, and solitude that plagues Justine from, from the outset, from childhood. Um, and it's definitely caused by her mother and her, her mother's sort of less than conventional lifestyle. Her mother is away a lot. Her yeah. mother is, is a passionate and devoted painter. And that takes precedence above all else. And, you know, one of the things I, I was really interested in exploring in the novel is the fallout of that when you mm. have a child. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I think Justine definitely suffers for it. I mean, it, it's, it, it really impacts um, her entire life and certainly where she finds herself at the beginning of the novel with this sort of layering of ambivalences, right? I mean, that comes from never feeling secure or sort of, you know, attached to... Um, you know, she, she, she has an attachment problem yeah. um, because of her um, absent mother. But at the same time, um, in her mother's defense, you know, I think as you, keep, as you go on in the novel, there's a lot of richness and um, meaning that Rachel is able to um, impart because yeah. of her devotion to art and painting and because of her you know, very sensitive and unique understanding of the world. So it's, it's definitely both a good and bad force in Justine's life. Yeah, she, she seems to, Justine seems to be, you know, laying about, you describe these scenes of, of, of where she's just, say, lying on a, on a coffee table, if you will, mm-hmm. um, just staring up at the, at the ceiling and pondering life. And, and um, she, she seems, she's our narrator in the book. And, and at the same time, when she describes like her mother, Rachel, or she describes, say, the, the the beginning of the relationship with Elias. Um, I guess that was the part where I, I, I started to doubt her reliability. Like, I, I kind of wondered if everything was as bad as it seemed. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's fair enough. Um, I mean, what I was really interested in looking at um, and exploring was this notion of meaning and how... Rachel, because of her art, because she has a sort of beyond end all driving uh-huh. force in her life. Um, there's a line in the book actually where Justine starts dating her, the man who will become her husband, Elias, and uh-huh. he's um, going on about his interest in economics and left wing economics. And Justine is really impressed by what he's saying, not, not by the content, but by his conviction. Mm. And she goes on to think, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever encountered that degree of conviction before, because maybe my mother had taught me that making art depended on a kind of faithlessness above and beyond anything but its own execution. I might have butchered that line a bit. But, mm. I mean, to, to me, that's really sort of, that, that, that epitomizes what's happening in the book where, you know, an artist who might, who might see all meaning located in what they do and what happens when they have a child who, who doesn't feel that way, who doesn't have the same attachment to an art form and is left feeling somewhat unmoored in a world that, that doesn't have meaning. So, I mean, it seems to me that what you might have been getting at was, you know, Justine, she, she sort of, she wallows a bit. You know, she yeah, a yeah. lot of it, how she's lonely and isolated and how she might not be happy in her marriage and how she can't figure out what she wants to do with her career and how she longs to be happy and she's sort of 
hates herself for, for finding herself in a situation where, where she should be and it is, is unable, unable to be. And that's like yeah. endlessly frustrating to her. But it's sort of that, that, I don't know, looking at meaning and her inability to, to, to find what it is in, in the context of her life that really fascinated me right yeah. from the book. Yeah, take, take her marriage, for example. She, she, she's, it's so beautiful how you write how she describes meeting Elias for the first time and how smitten she actually is with this guy. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time I'm reading that and I'm thinking, you know, she's really in love with him or she's mm-hmm. really taken by him. And yet what's happened since then, you know, and, and I, I find her <laughs> sort of just whining, I guess, about where <laughs> where she is with him and, and how like she, she just up and leaves, right? She does. I mean, let's not let's not give too much away. Yeah. Right? She, she's not dishonest with her. With she's not honest, rather, with her husband. Um, yeah. I mean. And, but I mean, by the way, for people listening, I, I, Martha, before I interrupt, when, when I say up and leaves, what, what happens in, for people listening to us? She she um, decides to go to England um, to to um, to study acting, but she doesn't get what the I guess she'd applied for, and then she ends up doing something else in England without his knowledge. Is that right? Or uh, he knows that she's going, but, she's very, yeah. She's very dishonest with her husband. Right. And she lies to him outright and really, you know, puts her marriage yeah. in great peril because of that. Um, and, and we figure out, we, we learn later in the book what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly what I was sort of trying to create. I, I don't think, I, I didn't want her to be whining necessarily. I didn't want her to be like <laughs> Incredibly ruminative and introspective, and trying to right. you know figure out why she's un- unable to be happy. Um, and I really did want to create Elias as this this sort of wonderful, stable aspect of her life. He's really kind of a foil to her mother Rachel, mm. who is all over the place yeah. um, and somewhat narcissistic and self interested. Um, Elias is a lawyer who works in so- social justice. Who has his two feet firmly planted on the ground, um, and who loves Justine and sees things in her that she wishes she could see herself. Um, so, so I, you know, I, in one sense, Rachel, the mother, and Elias, the husband, are foils, but in another, they both have a very clear sense of meaning in their lives, right? Like, yeah. Elias is, is a realist, and he, he sees the world for what it is, and he wants to fix it. You know, he's, he's optimistic, and he's rational. Rachel is sort of more emotional and temperamental um, and, and driven by this passion for the, the stuff she makes, for the meaning she tries to create in her life. And Justine has sort of gone from one to the other. She meets Elias when she's in her late teens and, you know, sort of falls into his arms, partly, I think, because she needs an escape from, from her mother uh-huh. for, for reasons that we won't completely get into in this interview because we don't want to give things away. But what she ends up sort of feeling is you know, in this valley between these two kind of polarities of meaning without, you know, having any herself. And she feels like a bit of a cipher. I think that's what it is. She feels like this sort of empty vessel. Uh, she really doesn't know who she is. And she's about to turn 30, which is, you know, a symbolic age. Yeah. And she doesn't understand. I mean, she, I feel like she's conscious of the fact that she is perhaps being, you know, too um, introspective or, you know, let's say whiny as you did. You know, or you're th- overthinking she's, she's things. She's very yeah. self-critical, you know. She's yeah. very, and, and she doesn't like that in herself. And she, she does want to fix it. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it's um, it, it's such a fascinating, rich character. And I, I, I can just imagine you writing her. 
um, <laughs> beyond, say, writing whatever happens to her in, in the book, and just enjoying living with her as you did. Did you? Yeah, I really did. Um, I think, you know, one of the big objectives for me with this book, my, my first novel, Various Positions, is told from the perspective of a 14-year-old girl. So the challenge in writing that was trying to distill her naivety and, you know, distill her lack of understanding mm. and create this very raw, unprocessed voice. I really wanted to do something different with my face in the light. I wanted um, a narrator who could think uh, very elegantly um, on the page, and I wanted to find a lot of depth and precision in her thoughts. I wanted a narrator who was interested in thinking, and I wanted to find a way to, to recreate that on a very, you know, syntactical sentence level. So I did. I loved writing Justine. I loved sitting with her and just letting her think and and seeing where that would take her mm -hmm. and, and me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was a pleasure. And and as I said, she, she's such a, a compelling character that, that um, even if, however one feels about her, we really want to know what happens, and, and we really want to so, sort of follow. I mentioned a moment ago that, that um, because she's a narrator, we seem to know everybody else's problems, uh, everyone else's neuroses, everyone else's motive, except we, I don't know how much of, of, of Justine's do we really know. And I, I'm thinking... Um, was that deliberate in terms of, of, of your on your part as the author? Um, yes and no, I'd say. I mean, I think that amounts to the fact that when you, know, you see someone else, it's very easy to have an opinion on on what's going on in their lives and you know what they're searching for, and and it, you know it's very easy to to feel as though you understand them. But when you are trying to figure things out yourself, um, things become much more nebulous. And because the novel is told in the first person from Justine's point of view, she's, even though she's searching and she's trying to make sense of things, she's never quite able to put her finger on exactly what it is. It's, instead, it's sort of a, a layering of um, you know, this lack of feeling real in her life and feeling completely sort of unmoored, which is yeah. a term I've used before, um, you know, feeling as though she has a successful career. But what, what did she do? Um, to deserve it, or even to to, to develop it, to want it. Um, you know, she has a lie. She has a marriage that should be happy, and she does love him, but she doesn't feel like herself. And yeah. I mean, the, the novel is an identity crisis. It's about an identity crisis in, in many ways. Um, and I think often when we're going through that, we we're struggling, and you know, the words the, and perspective to be able to you know articulate exactly what it's about will we'll never be there. So, I, you know, I think I was trying to achieve a kind of psychological realism that way by, by making Justine, you know, not entirely able to express yeah. her, her, her issues. So, so you, you mentioned the scar on her face. How pronounced is it? Yeah, I mean, that is something that I wanted to be slightly open to interpretation because I think, um, I think it's quite pronounced and Justine yeah. talks about you know, people notice it. We see that as a reader. But we also see as a reader people saying to Justine, you know, I think, I think you might put too much into that scar than, than mm. actually exists. Like, I think it, it might bother you a little bit more than it should. Um, so I, I was really playing with the idea of, you know, when, when we hate something about ourselves and when it symbolizes things that have gone wrong in our lives, we are certainly capable of distorting it. 
And I definitely think Justine distorts it, yeah. probably in both directions. Probably sometimes she sees it as, as you know, nearly invisible and she's feeling confident, and other times she sees it as being very, very pronounced. There's a passage in the book that I, I think really speaks to that, where she explains that she feels like she needs to check on it. But even though, like, it exists on a scaffolding of nerves that have, you know, long since been able to heal or do anything, yeah. it's dead skin, it's scar tissue, um, she has this sort of compulsion that if she doesn't check on her scar, it might change without her knowing it. Yeah, it's it's such a character itself in the story, um, because yeah, I do wonder what it looks like, and I wonder how pronounced it is. Um, and at the same time, it affects her life in so many ways. It affects how she interacts with people um, when she first meets them, say, because people do ask her about it the first time you know um, they meet. Uh, whether it's Max or whether it's Elias even, um, it, it does uh, take on something else beyond just a scar, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And um, we won't give too much away, but yeah. the notion of, of scars, the theme of scars, plays out in a different way um, as the novel progresses. You probably haven't gotten to this point yeah. yet. Um, so the idea of the this tension between how we see ourselves and how the world sees us, um, and also about bodies and, and, and depiction and, and painting, you know, that Rachel paints, um, paints people for the most part. Um, you know, this is all thematized in the book as well. Yeah. By the way, when um, the scar um, um, is a result of walking through a glass door as a child, mm-hmm. and... Um, in the book, you, uh, she says that um, Rachel, her mother, takes her to, to doctors, but they don't want to do anything for about a year. Is that normal in terms of, of scarring? Because it, one would think that, that if, if something was broken or, or whatever, that, that you'd want it fixed right away. Otherwise, yeah, it, it does sort of distort, and, and when it grows over whatever it does, it would probably be screwed up, if you will, and... and, and that's why there is this, the, the scar as it is. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was normal, but I'm certainly no expert in plastic surgery. So if it's a fictionalization, then I so see. Be it. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, the um, another character in the book is is Max Halimi, mm-hmm. uh, a stranger that she meets on the train. Um, such a fascinating character because we we. we um, when they meet, it's it's such a uh, a meeting on a train where um, they talk, and and I don't know how people are in terms of, of talking to strangers on a train or a bus or something like that or a public place. Um, they they have a very interesting conversation, don't they? And and he offers her. I mean, what can you tell us about that? Yes. Well, um, I think. Uh, listeners might find it interesting to know that this part of the novel was based on something that happened to me. So really? Just to set it up a bit, yeah. Set it up a bit. Um, Justine goes to England yeah. to audition for an apprenticeship with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, she blows the audition. I won't get into the details. Mm-hmm. Uh, she doesn't know what she's going to do. She's still sort of longing for this escape route from her life, you know, leaving Toronto for the UK, for London. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know how she's going to do that, especially now that she's not going to get into the, the apprenticeship. Taking the Thameslink back out to Gatwick Airport, there's a man sitting across from her. He starts to talk to her. Her first instinct is, mm, I don't really want to talk to this yeah, strange man. Sure. But 
she ends up saying, yes, I came here for this audition. Yes, I, I didn't, it didn't work out. I'm still longing to move. I can't afford it. I don't know how I'd work. I'm an actor, et cetera, et cetera. And by the end of the train ride, he says, listen, here's my business card. I have, I have some real estate that I rent out. I have some work here and there. You want to live in London? I can give you room and board um, and provide you with an under-the-table job. And he doesn't get into the details. And his team takes his card and later calls him. Yeah. And the novel evolved from that point on. Yeah. So, so Yeah, this is actually based on something that happened to me about 15 years ago um, when I was applying for master's degrees in creative writing. Um, I applied to a few, and my dream program was the master's in creative writing at the University of East Anglia. Oh, yeah. That's where you went, right? That's where yeah. I went, yeah. And, you know, I, I really wanted to go because some of my favorite writers at the time were alumni like oh, sure. Anne Wright and yeah. Kazuo Ishiguro and many others. Anyway, so when I found out that I had been shortlisted, I decided to go to England to do the interview in, per- in person because I really wanted to get yeah. in. Um, and I did the interview, and same thing. You know, I was excited, but I had no idea how I, I was going to afford it. I was taking the train back out to the airport, and a man started to talk to me. And, of course, my first instinct was to rush yeah, him off. Yeah, yeah. But there was, there was something about him that drew him in, maybe something about the specificity of his questions. You know, he was very curious about the program, about what was so special about it. You know, why, why did I want to move to England for it as opposed to just staying in Toronto? And when I told him about the pedigree of some of the alumni and how great the professors were, um, he said, you know, how are you going to afford it? Um, what, what would it cost? was sort of crunching some numbers in his mind and by the end of the train ride he gave me his business card and he said listen if you get into this program call me i will pay for your tuition and for you room and board for you to have enough money to stay and support yourself while in school in exchange for the rights to your first novel and any of the revenue that you make huh. so i took his business card yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I don't think i entertained the notion of calling him for for one second you know it just seemed like a great story yeah, yeah and it was a great story i entertained you know family and friends with it for a little while afterwards but the story really lived in my imagination you know why why would it why would this man make that offer like it could it have possibly been made in in good faith uh-huh. why would he have done that and yeah i i reworked it into this book so you never did call him i never did <laughs> See now, because as you're telling the story, I had a million questions about how much of, of, of what Justine's experience was was yours, and so th- that's where it ends, I guess, with you, right? It ends right there because <laughs> you know I never, in real yeah. life, you don't call strange men who make you bizarre offers that don't make sense. <laughs> you know, it's a sort of parallel universe that you can explore in fiction that you can't explore in real life. Yeah. It, it, it's such a it's a fascinating story. It reminds me of the Carol Burnett um, story. The same thing sort of happened to her, where um, someone had seen her in in some amateur thing that she'd done, or, or high school, or something like that, and uh, he offers to support her for the first year, and um, nothing was exchanged other than than, than the money and and and. Um, not even a friendship. Well, I guess they, they met each other over over the years, but she, she's never told this. Uh, she's never revealed who the person was or, or his motive, even. Well, and motivation was what really intrigued me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, definitely, it's what I explored in this book, and, and playing with um, 
ways that Max Lemmy was both sort of good in his motivations, that there's some purity, some goodness in that. But, you know, it's not it's not a very black or white thing. There's, there's tons of ambiguity in terms of what pans out yeah. to be his motives. Well, I have, a, I have an, another set of uh, questions about uh, what happens in the novel, but I think I, I should finish it. Uh, rather than ask you about them. But in terms of how you write, um, uh, do, do, you, um, do you have a schedule in terms of, of, of how often you write and when, say, or where even? Um, I wrote most of this novel um, in the mornings. I like to write in the morning when I'm, you know, fresh and have just had some coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, most of this novel I wrote when I was working at the Globe and Mail as a dance critic. Uh-huh. So um, I would sort of divide my time between writing about dance or I reviewed some theater as well and then working on the book and bouncing back and forth between that. My life has changed dramatically um, since then. I've had two kids and uh, I'm working full-time um, at a consulting company now, um, uh-huh. which means to support the kids. Yeah. So writing is happening more sporadically, I'm sort of just relearning how to fit it into to my schedule. But um, yeah, uh, I, w- I, w- yeah, I would think your, your critical writing or the, the writing that you did for the Globe, for example, is, is very different from writing um, uh, for a novel. Say, I mean, you're writing on deadline in in, in another instance, and, and for a novel, you're you're editing quite a bit uh, or rewriting essentially. Um, does, does your mind does it does it have to say is it a big leap to go from one to the other? Say, um, I would actually say not so much, or probably not as much as you might um, anticipate. I, I'm really interested in the overlap between critical and creative writing. You know, I've always found uh. that my favorite novelists often write in a very kind of cerebral, effusive. Um, almost essayistic form sometimes. I mean, not not all of them, but some of the writers I love, like Rachel Cusk and Gerald Murnane, and um, I could go on, obviously. Um, you know, I, I, I really like writers who think very well on the page, and that's not so different from critical writing, and in fact, some of my favorite critics are novelists as well. Um, so, you know, from a kind of stylistic point of view, it doesn't feel that differently. I'm trying to just, you know, think and express things with tons of specificity. You know, as a, as a novelist, you know, writing for me is about getting things right. And, of course, there might be a lot of uh, wordplay and distillation that comes with that, but it still feels like, you know, less a, less a matter of invention and creativity and more about, like, you know, staring really hard at the page and trying to get something just right. And the beauty comes from that sharpness. Um, and yeah, I mean, as a critic, I was doing something similar. I would see something and I was trying to just, you know, capture, trying to express what it was that was so magical or ineffable about it. Yeah. Time was the big difference, and I guess that's what you were um, alluding to. You know, I have a deadline. Usually it's an overnight deadline right. for, for dance criticism. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I certainly didn't have the luxury to revisit anything. You know, I had to get it right or get it as close to right the first time. Whereas with writing a novel, you know, I can tinker with a page or a paragraph or even a sentence for, you know, a yeah. week or a month. I can revisit something, and, and, and I love doing that because, you know, I love uh, writing that's lyrical and that that sort of, you know, coheres in a very aesthetic way. So that, that can take time. That, that definitely doesn't happen 
correctly the first time round. There's a lot in, in My Face in the Light that's very beautifully written. Um, so, so it is it, indeed uh, lyrical. There's, there's a lot that's clever, and, and obviously, as I've said already, quite engrossing. Um, it, it's been such fun to talk to you because I've been a fan of your writing uh, in the in the paper for for years, and and so to to read this along with that because I didn't read your first novel. Um, it's been fascinating just to see the the the. the, the myriad ways that you're able to write if you will it's, it's just fun to and i as i said i can't wait to get to get back to reading the book um congratulations on on it and, and continue good luck with it i appreciate your time today thank you so much it's been lovely to talk the book is called my face in the light it's published by Knopf. it's author martha shabis join me on the line from toronto in vancouver i'm joseph planto